Hi, I'm Keith McCullough. Welcome back to another Real Conversation, where today it's my pleasure to have Mr. Dan Alpert, who's the managing partner at Westwood Capital and also a fellow at the Century Foundation, to talk to me not only about what he thinks about deflation and oversupply, but his book, which I thought was a fantastic book. It's called The Age of Oversupply. And what I like to think is that history has a lot to teach us and we can learn from people like Dan who go down a path that very few have gone down. So on that front, Dan, I'd like to, A, thank you for writing what you did and taking the time to go through it all, because I'm, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm very certain that it was not easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a great deal of uh, fun and education and, and certainly worthwhile project. Yeah, it was. And, and, and certainly for those of us who kind of geek out on economics and history, and for me at least, because I had really never focused uh, so much on global labor, uh, and you really started with that, uh, can you kind of go back to 1978 and why you felt that that was one of the interesting signposts? Well, I think the 70s in general uh, really exhibited the, the need for uh, supply in the United States. I mean, we were going through uh, after a huge, huge growth period where America became a very wealthy country after the war. Um, we actually had a situation where we had undersupply. We had uh, excess demand and insufficient uh, uh, capacity. And so what you saw was a period of enormous inflation um, that brought into the fore a lot of supply-side thought that uh, then took hold of the country during the 1980s in the Reagan administration. Um, that was all actually quite legitimate. <clears throat> the notion of uh, cutting taxes from punitive levels uh, was, was quite uh, key. And very important in terms of uh, getting the uh, country back on its feet. Uh, Volcker's uh, raising interest rates in order to staunch inflation was also very important. And by 1982, we were on a bit of a roll uh, with the uh, unfortunate after effect being we, we, we did it to a, a fairly excessive uh, amount in, in the 1980s and ended up with a credit bubble. But what also happened in 1978 is, uh, you know, we had uh, Gorbachev and we had... Uh, uh, the beginnings of perestroika, uh, which ultimately led in uh, 1989 to the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, we had uh, liberalization occurring in China. Uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, created enormous agricultural liberalization, uh, which then led to the Tiananmen uh, incident, and the Tiananmen incident actually expanded those liberalizations into urban cities. That's really where the inflection point uh, hit. We suddenly had a post-socialist world, uh, in which uh, literally billions of people who were relatively irrelevant uh, to global economics suddenly emerged. Uh, put this in perspective, you're dealing with about 800 million people in the developed world. That's uh, Japan, U.S., North America at large, and Western Europe, uh, 800 million people. And suddenly 3.5 billion people <laughs> who, really, who really didn't matter all that much economically show up and decide that they would like to live the way we do, uh, and they were willing to, to get there by working for 10 or 20 cents on the dollar, which uh, fundamentally they still are. So you, so you end up with this just oversupply of labor, which is kind of the, the founding point, or at least one of the pillars of your book. And then you get into the oversupply of capital. So you got an oversupply of capital and labor. So can you kind of walk us through the next step of that? Yeah, sure. Uh, just going, going back a little bit, um, the, the whole notion of the supply side thought that we that I spoke about earlier in the discussion, 
really overstate its welcome. Suddenly we had excess supply and excess supply in terms of the labor I just spoke about, in terms of the productive capacity that these countries were able to build in relatively short order. Let's start from 89 as sort of the break point where, mm-hmm. where you had uh, these two major historical events, the release of this enormous amount of labor. It took them a good 15 years, uh, maybe a little less, uh, to get to the point where they were actually critical. In fact, I would say, um, uh, other than but for the fact that we have this enormous productivity boost in the West due to uh, the Internet and, and all this incredible technology, um, they may have been ready to be fully competitive with the developed world uh, probably in as little as 10 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall. But a lot of that was masked by the productivity boost in the West, and, and what we really got to at the end of the day uh, was about 2002, 2003, uh, when suddenly there was this enormous amount of productive capacity, huge amounts of excess labor. And we woke up one day with, obviously, there were nice books written by Tom Friedman and other people about outsourcing, and people started to, realizing we were losing jobs by the bucket load. Um, and ultimately, where we ended up was, was a situation that really has never bef- happened before in the world. And that was a, that was the condition in which prevails to this day of poor countries actually sending money back to rich countries. We were buying so much from China and other, uh, developing countries, uh, that they had nothing to do with our money. They couldn't, uh, convert it into their own currency because that would have made their products not competitive. So they didn't want to have their currency go up. And so we have places like China that have a controlled currency. And what they were doing is they were actually sending the money that we were sending them back and investing in our treasury bonds uh, and other assets over time, but mostly risk-free assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that forced interest rates to incredibly low levels that prevail to this day. So you end up with like one massive, it's like massive amount of supply upon massive amount of supply, and you get cheap money. So if I were to boil it down to, you know, really labor and monies, you end up with, I guess, the biggest supply in humanity's history is what you're saying. And that's... Yeah, it's a, it's, a one, it's a one-time event. It's as though Martians landed on the planet, right? You, you're, you're never <laughs> going to see a repeat. Well, you're, you're never going to see a repeat of the post-socialist period, right? There, right. If you think about it in its totality, uh, who would have thought that we would have locked up billions of people and civilization uh, under communism for seventy some odd years, yeah. right? Uh, so, so we we had that door unlocked, and suddenly these people emerge and they tumble out in huge force. Uh, and you know, while we had patted ourselves on the back for having won the Cold War, it's a practical matter. We didn't see this coming. Well, it's, it's it's amazing. And then once you boiled it down, and I think that this is at least how I think about the world from a complexity theorist perspective is. You know, that you have this, you know, this globally interconnected world of dynamically changing things, but it boils down to some very deep and simple points, which is you have two more billion people in the workforce and you have trillions upon trillions upon trillions at this point. Uh, I think you said to me earlier you'd have to keep rewriting the book or you could update the book because we really truly continue to add, like the Japanese just did, more and more cheap money on top of all this labor. And... Politically, I guess the dialogue continues to be confused on the output of that, which is wage deflation. So that's what I wanted yeah. to go to next. And, and really why I yeah. wanted people to, to read your book and, and hear your perspective, because there's so many political pundits out there who don't get why wage deflation and or deflation itself is, is, is such a big political issue. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 one of the things, of course, that, that everybody thought when we commenced this period and 
uh, during the Great Recession of enormous quantitative easing, all these extraordinary monetary policies, is that we were inevitably, inevitably going to have inflation. And I was sitting around saying that whole time, well, that's, that's really rather impossible, not with this enormous imbalance mm-hmm. uh, between a huge, much larger labor force uh, in developing countries that were willing to work cheap and a price and wage structure in the West or in, in developed countries uh, that was far in excess of what these other people were willing to tolerate uh, and uh, were willing to work for. So when that happens, you have to, you had two, two things that really happened during this period. During the bubble of the 2000s, uh, a lot of this reverse capital flows, as economists would call it, uh, caused not only rates to fall, but also caused a dislocation of domestic capital, meaning that uh, the Chinese, for example, were willing to take such low interest rates on our treasury bonds that people who were no longer happy with the nominal rates of return that were being offered on treasury bonds went looking for yield elsewhere. Uh And that led to this enormous repositioning of capital into extraordinarily high-risk although highly rated assets, which we knew as junk uh, uh, mortgages, um, and and created this this rush for yield that unfortunately led to a huge credit bubble. So, um, what what happened ultimately is that you uh, created not only an imbalance, you know, the condition of a, of, of a labor and wage imbalance, which obviously exists by virtue of the numbers we just spoke about. But you also created a situation in which there's a huge debt overhang in the West. So, you know, Europe is buried under tons of sovereign debt and tons of household debt, depending on which country you're talking about. U.S., huge amounts of excess household debt. We haven't haven't, uh, reduced the amount of household debt since the beginning of the Great Recession. Uh, We've reduced it in proportion to GDP, but unfortunately GDP has flowed only to a very narrow group of people. Mm-hmm. The average median household isn't receiving the benefit of that increase in GDP. Um, and so consequently, their debt load is still there. They can't consume. So we have a double whammy of excess debt uh, and, and massive wage imbalances that persist, which creates a tsunami of deflation. We've been holding that off through these extraordinary monetary policies. And the reason that we've been unable to exit them is think about the Dutch boy with his finger in the dike. Right on the other side of that dike is a wall of deflation. We pull our finger out, right? The deflation flows over, and that's what we're seeing right now. What what they're doing is they're they're policy making for the preservation of asset values yeah. in financial and real assets. That's really the bottom line. Is that um, if you really think about what a society wants to do when it comes to wealth is preserve it. Uh Nobody wants to see the value of stocks and real estate go down because obviously that is a depressive event. Um, And so when when you start to solve for asset values and ignore imbalances in wages and prices, Uh what you get to is this very, very difficult um, uh, situation where you're 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 between a rock and a hard place. If you actually try to remove the stimulus that's keeping asset prices up, wage and price deflation will bring the bring the asset prices down. Obviously, I think it doesn't. We, we don't need to explain it, but we should probably make a point that asset prices are based on real prices in the real economy, right? So if, if uh, the easiest way of saying it, if wages go down, people can't pay the rent, the rent goes down, and then the value of the building goes down. Yeah. 
right? It's pretty simple. And the same thing can be said really, pretty, pretty much in any case. If you look at a corporation, if they can't charge as much for their products, their earnings will go down in, nominal, in a nominal sense. So um, th- this is the thing that you're trying to keep from happening. This is uh, what uh, extraordinary economic policy is all about. And ultimately, instead of setting off a robust recovery in the real economy, what extraordinary monetary policy has done is actually merely created a small wealth effect, has, has, has kept things from completely collapsing, all very, very good, by the way. Uh, you know, I, I, would, I would not have said they shouldn't have done that. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, we haven't been able to achieve escape velocity because we really don't have a real underlying recovery going on. How does the inequality debate come to meet its maker? Does it have to meet its maker? Does there have to be a market event? Does there have to be an asset price deflation? How do you think this plays out? Well, first of all, learn to speak Japanese and go over to Japan and talk to a lot of the Japanese because they've been living through this for 15 years. Right. Um, it's not like we have we don't we, it's not like we don't have a laboratory to actually observe. We can see what happens when you have low grade deflation, persistent low grade deflation for a long period of time. Yep. Uh, and and how it is. It, by, by the way, from a consumer standpoint, in Japan, life's pretty good. Yeah, exactly. Right? Wages are wages are not rising; they fall. Uh, prices are falling. Uh, fortunately for the Japanese, they were a high savings rate country. We, of course, didn't save a dime. Um, so the, the big problem here when you bring up the inequality issue, uh, or I, I don't even like to use the word inequality. I never promised anyone equality, but I, I like to use the word polarization. Um, the, the, the upshot is, is if, you, if you look at wealth and income polarization in this country, the problem is that the uh, 90%, let's just say, of the people in this country are really unable to make ends meet and will become increasingly slow uh, uh, so in the future and that that it's almost inevitable that prices will fall mm-hmm. you have you have a situation right now where you can see it written so large on the wall that to ignore it means literally closing and taping closing your eyes and taping them shut mm-hmm. you've got you've got a, a, a huge wave of disinflation in uh, in Europe, you've got a wave, a, renew, a renewed wave of disinflation in Japan. More importantly, China's inflation rate has fallen to 1.6 percent. This is an economy growing at 7 percent a year with an inflation rate of 1.6 percent. Yeah. That is more dangerous than any of the other the, the the former two things that I mentioned. So you have this you have this massive uh, disinflationary slash deflationary effect that is just brewing around the world. And what is it translating into? It's translating into a strong dollar. Uh-huh. Because countries, whether they say it or not, are out there trying desperately to devalue their currencies. And what happens when you devalue your currency, when everybody goes out and tries to devalue their currency at the same time? Well, we saw that back in the 1920s uh-huh. and 30s. So um, the, the, the upshot is that you know this is coming. Uh, the strong dollar is our enemy, not our friend. We, you can look at the data that came out just today in import and export prices. They are falling like a rock. And yeah, that, that data was horrendous. Soar break-even, ZOL price. I mean, and that's, uh, that's and trailing that data, so it's, it's going to be lower. That is all going to be imported into the U.S., yep. meaning uh, you, you will start to see uh, prices fall. Uh, wages will not rise. Wages will start to fall. And we will get back into the same position that we've been in. 
you know, I was talking to one of the most brilliant analysts in Asia uh, over the, earlier this week, and he had something to say that just shocked me because we've seen uh, the RMB, China's currency, begin to fall as the Chinese have started to play the currency weapon, um, and they are going to continue to try to dump products in the U.S. by using currency. Um, but moreover, what moreover, what this guy said, and I don't want to mention his name because he sells a proprietary product. Um, <laughs> what what this guy says is is that he thinks that in 2015, China will do a one-time devaluation of the RMB, and he thinks it could be up to 20 percent. Oh, um, That of course will that of course will set off enormous howls of protest yeah. uh, in in Washington. But um, th- this is a this is a huge problem. Yeah. Uh, the the U.S. economy cannot sustain at the current asset value levels, the current levels of the stock market, current levels of real estate amidst falling wages and prices. Well, it's, it's fascinating to watch. I wrote a, 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 a piece this morning called The Bad Deflation. Uh, when you have the dollar up and you have interest rates falling, you know, there's only really one recent period, which was late 2008, when these signals start to manifest. And people completely ignored them. I mean, I, they'd say that it was buying opportunities in asset prices. And the higher the dollar went and the lower that interest rates went, the more the risks started to climb. And like you said, you could have your, your eyes taped shut unless you were deaf and nobody told you. I mean, at the end of the day, this is pretty obvious at this point, I would, I would say, on my screens. Would you agree with that? It, it, it confronts us every day in the data. Uh, the right. only thing that uh, is uh, non-correlated is the actual activity in asset markets. I mean, look, let, let me put it a different way for, for people who are stock jockeys. Uh, they, they sit around, they look at companies' margins, they look at companies' earnings, they look at companies' revenues. You know what they don't look at? Unit pricing. And, and next time you go through a, a company's financial statement, try to find unit pricing. You'll never find it. Yeah. Right? What matters, you know, a company can be out there selling more units for any number of reasons. They could be consolidation. I mean, obviously, uh, my classic example is when Circuit City went bankrupt and there was only one electronics retailer. Obviously, they sold more electronics because their competition <laughs> wasn't there. Um, yeah, so, so you can have companies out there selling more units, and they could even see their revenues go up, right, if they can sell more units than they did. But the question is, How's unit pricing doing? Yeah, right. Well, it's it's so it's, it's eventually it's, that's where it comes into the, uh, it's, to the equation. Well, it forces uh, like I, I like to kind of uh, exercise my inner, inner Hemingway and say at first it happens slowly and then it happens all at once. When you talk about pricing, if you look at energy bonds, high yield energy bonds, energy related stocks, now it's like McFly realizes that the energy price falling <laughs> is going to be bad for the unit pricing in in, in your in your words, and I and, and I wonder. Uh, if you've thought about this, maybe it's a good way to kind of wrap this up. Have you thought uh, a lot or extensively, have you done any work on the interconnectedness of the high-yield and junk bond market that's related to basically pricing expectations or inflation expectations uh, and what that risk could look like flowing back to this navel-gazing U.S. equity market that people continue to chase? Well, interestingly, uh, you know, high yield uh, obviously is a, is a is a market that correlates with equities at a certain level. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's also a preferred claim, and and uh, uh, it is it is a, a credit instrument. So, one one of the things that I look at when I look at high yield, obviously, there's very little liquidity in that sector right now. Brutal. Uh, there's nothing. There's no bids. There's no. There's no ask. So, so at, at, at the end of the day, that's really what's the fundamental in the market today is the liquidity. But when you think about it from a 
from a financial standpoint. Um, interesting thing about this unit price argument, expenses tend to go down too. They don't go down as much as loss in unit prices because obviously expenses are less than revenue, and if they weren't, you'd be bankrupt. Um, so the, so the, the, the upshot is there is a buffer that, 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 that protects debt and hurts equity, exactly. meaning that if you own the stock in the company, you're going to take the first hit from declining unit prices. But the fact is that the beneficiary of that literally is going to be the next guy down the capital stack who is probably going to be okay, maybe a little bit, bit, bit worse off, but nowhere near as worse off as the equity. So um, if you were actually looking to invest in a company by way of its debt or its equity, the only thing that's a negative to buying the debt today is the very low rates of return, which is why there's no liquidity. Now, what do you what do you think about that liquidity point relative to 2007? I, I was at Carlisle in 2007, literally uh, on the debt side of things. It was pretty epic in terms of how quickly we lost money. I obviously wasn't on the debt side, thank God, but I did get to see it firsthand. Uh, I hear what you just said on liquidity. It's an absolute fact on the buy side right now. Bonds at a bare minimum and high yield and junk are trading gappy, uh, but there's no one really who's allowed to show what they own on the offer. Um, like, how do you think that looks relative to any other history we've seen, and how does that fit within your oversupply, uh, maybe debt outstanding? I don't, I don't know how you'd frame it up. Well, no, I think, I think the issue right now is, uh, you know, what is a reasonable coupon on high-yield debt? Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you know that you're going to get the majority of your principal back by holding, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the, the, the question is, what is your tolerance for a small loss, which you're not is not completely out of the question, but um, while you're in a safer position than the equity, uh, the, the, the upshot is until we see a revaluation of the high-yield market, that what, what the lack of liquidity is telling you is that the values are wrong. Yeah. And we don't have people dumping yet. When people dump, the, uh, the values will change and there will be renewed liquidity. I showed the all-time high in debt outstanding in the high-yield and junk market relative to the all-time low in credit spreads. Now that, like when people say, what, why is this crisis going to be different than the last one? They're always, they seem to be looking for the last crisis. To me, this is a much more, first of all, there's way more debt. And second of all, it's way less liquid. Do you agree with that? Totally. No, I mean, I think you're on the right track. I think you should be watching that sector very closely. It should perform in the way that I'm, that I'm describing. There is a base level of value to the claim itself, mm-hmm. meaning that most companies will probably be able to pay their claim. Yeah. But the amount that they're being charged for the money that they've borrowed is too low, and therefore the market is signaling back, you know, there's no bid. Yeah. Um, and, You're not allowed to show your offer. You <laughs> and first, yeah, and first, what you see is a shutdown in new issuance, right? Mm-hmm. And then eventually, you get to the point of com- of, uh, of of uh, you've got a period of complacency that's going on yeah. right now. But eventually, you get to a collapse, and and the the people who who realize that uh, they're they're going to uh, uh, need to be paid more to carry that risk, they will eventually buy at lower prices. Now, that claim, and again, it's a very, you know, only, only somebody with market wisdom and experience would make that point. You've got all these, again, these equity navel gazers who don't understand the preferred claim that even you, you just said, you'd rather own that than maybe, uh, what if you have a small cap, a liquid equity? And again, all my work would show that you have the most expensive Russell 2000 and trailing earnings with, again, the, the least liquidity that we've ever seen. You know, what happens to sectors like MLP linked bonds or anything that's really, I pick on MLPs because they're like five times levered and traded two times what an upstream, you know, E&P would trade at in the normal equity market. But, 
Like what do all anything that's a small to a liquid small cap equity with debt look like in this situation? Is that where the zeros are? Yeah, that's where you're going to get hammered. So I anything mean, that's, that's linked to pricing, unit pricing, that's your, your language, but I think that's the right language. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think unit pricing is something you have to consider in its many forms. So, for example, let's say you were a pipeline energy MLP, right, where you're charging a tariff for transmission of, uh, of, of, of the, uh, the oil or gas. Yeah. Um, the, the, uh, the, the, the question is, what is the dynamics of that business itself? Or where is demand? Where is flow? How, you know, as opposed to the unit pricing issue. Um, the, uh, but in other areas, you, you know, you can look pretty, pretty, uh, uh carefully at, uh, uh, you know, overall demand. I think one of the things we didn't discuss on this is the general issue of aggregate demand in the world. Right. Uh, over the, the mirror image of oversupply is obviously aggregate demand, and aggregate demand is a, is a function of consumption uh, in, in uh, globally. Uh, you obviously have seen uh, the eurozone kind of separate from the rest of the world, and that consumption's fall off a cliff there. Um, you you have a country like China that is not consuming anywhere near what it's producing, so oh, it has this massive savings rate. Yeah. Um, and you have Japan that is out there using the currency weapon with the what is the yen at right now? One sixteen or something like that. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, so so you know, you've had a yen that's gone from seventy nine to one sixteen, and and uh, in a short period of time, um, making its exports very attractive and and. Uh, uh, putting a great deal of pressure on the countries that it trades with. So, um, it, you know, you have just a, a global inadequacy of demand uh, relative to this huge oversupply. And, and that is something that is, in, it, it just, it doesn't take more than a, a you know, first year undergraduate education <laughs> to figure out that, 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 that the math is such that yeah. you're going to get to, uh, uh, to to a situation of falling prices. I don't understand how anybody could come to a different conclusion. Well, the only way they can, Dan, as you've seen in the year 2000, year 2007, and you were one of the few that was out there that called you know the, the 2007 top in crisis to come. I mean, what you see is momentum traders in equity markets become popular. They put on more leverage. The, the rally in equities becomes more narrow. Uh, but what I saw in October was fascinating. If you go back to that and I say, okay, let's look at illiquidity, and the small cap bubble at that point, the Russell 2000 was down 15% in a straight line from July. I, could, I, can't, I can't even articulate how the kind of phone conversations I was having with buy side guys that kept asking me, could we crash from here? Why is it that a month later, that is basically completely and utterly forgotten? Is it just the momentum nature of the equity market? Well, it, again, you've got an enormous amount of cash looking for a home. Yep. If you're expecting deflation, the logical issue is don't take risk and put your cash on the table and watch it earn purchasing power by taking zero risk, right? Right. That's it. The, the, the bottom line, though, is that uh, people have a, have a bias towards inflation. It's a, it's a multi-decade bias towards Investing inflation. bias. It's a style bias. Yeah. It's a style bias. Okay. And, and uh, you know, one of the things I say to people who ask me for investment advice is I say, look, Tell me where you are at on my claims of, of a deflationary tsunami, right? <laughs> if you think I'm wrong, if you think I'm wrong, go ahead and take risk and equities. Yeah. If you think I'm right, buy bonds yeah. and, and, and shun equities like the plague. So it, it really requires you because ask yourself at the outset, why do people expose themselves to risk in the first instance beyond greed? 
in the first instance, they want to protect their purchasing power. Yeah. Right? They're investing in things that are going to grow because prices grow. Mm-hmm. And they want to protect that. So the, the higher inflation, the more risk you need to take. If you uh, have 10% inflation, as we did during uh, the 1970s, um, you know, you you need to own that piece of real estate. If you don't own that that piece of real estate, you're going to lose purchasing power at the at the rate of ten percent a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so so, but in a in low uh, inflationary environment or no inflationary, God forbid, a deflationary environment, you should be taking almost no risk. Yeah. Why? Why? Because you have you don't have that loss of purchasing power hanging over your head. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't find a better mousetrap and invest in a company that's building them or, or start a company that builds better mousetraps and make a lot of money. You can. You can take risk and make money, but it has to be through value added. It can't simply be by buying into equities at extraordinarily high prices that we have today. Yeah, what freaks people out is they get these guys in Silicon Valley saying, no, it's the bond bubble, and I keep saying, no, it's the growth, <laughs> stupid. and. You know, like yeah, they'll literally yeah. say that they'll pay 25 times revenues for Alibaba's equity and say that, uh, you know, the long term, you know, the long bond is expensive because it just looks expensive in yield terms. It, it looks expensive from the standpoint of historical yield, I think yeah. is the right way to say it. But the, the but it doesn't look expensive in when you when you consider the enormity of, say, global foreign currency reserves in emerging markets, right? When you consider yep. that, uh, you know, there's about $7.9 trillion in the emerging markets being held in mostly dollars, euros, and yen. Yep. And, and, uh, and that, and mostly dollars, mm-hmm. by the way. Uh, and, and that money is going to be there for a very long period of time. Uh, and it's not going to seek to take risk. The Chinese would love to take some risk, right? But they see the same thing we do. Look, yeah. at, look at what happened in the copper market. They were using copper as a store of value. They were actually buying copper and then getting domestic banks to lend against it. Yeah, it's crazy. Right? People were putting their money in copper, and suddenly the copper market falls apart because everybody wakes up one morning and says, you know what, Chinese demand isn't what we thought it was. Same thing happens in oil, and same thing happens in the other commodity sectors. This is signaling a massive reconstitution of the price algorithm globally, and people are just closing their eyes to it. Yeah, on every bounce, they want to chase the bounce as opposed to selling the bounce. Things like copper, we actually put up a note today on why you should sell copper on the bounce. I totally agree with you, it, and I just wanted to, A, thank you for this, and also just make sure that people, you know, a lot of people this year, we made a call to be, to be long the long bond, and I think when you look at the returns on Anything that's long dated, you know, whether it be 20, 30 year or even something that's ETF driven, like individuals will look at TLT, the returns, Dan, reflect a lot of what's in your book. I mean, and I think that that's, uh, again, I want to thank you for that. For those of you who haven't read Dan's book, again, it's called The Age of Oversupply. Uh, if you are long bonds or you need to get long, longer of the long bond, I'm sure Dan can teach you like you did, Dan. And thank you again for teaching me a lot of things with what you've, uh, what you've researched here. All right, great talking to you, Keith, as always. This is Real Conversations. You can find me on my Twitter handle right here. And you can find Dan, too. He's on Twitter. He's very active, and he provides an update on what he thinks on the world each and every day as well. Thank you for listening to this edition of HedgeEye's Real Conversations. If you enjoyed this interview, we encourage you to subscribe to HedgeEye Podcasts for automatic downloads of future interviews with top market and economic thought leaders. You can also visit HedgeEye.com for additional content. There you can learn more about our financial research firm's comprehensive market research products and complimentary videos and analysis.
The proceeding has been presented for informational purposes only, and none of the information contained herein constitutes a solicitation, offer, opinion, or recommendation by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guest speakers to buy or sell any security or to provide legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice regarding the profitability or suitability of any security or investment. Opinions and analysis are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can and may go up or down based on any number of factors. Consult your financial professional before investing.